So uh, I know today's only the second Sunday of Advent, but um, I'm already over Christmas. <clears throat> I mean, let, let's be honest. It is not the most wonderful time of the year. Bah humbug, I say. And, and, and I'm not being a Grinch. I'm, I'm not being a Scrooge. I'm, I'm just not a Cindy Lou Who or a Clark Griswold or a Tiny Tim. Really, I, I'm just tired. Amen? According to the National Institute of Health, uh, Christmas is a time of year when people report higher incidence of depression and anxiety. Now, the underlying uh, up causes for this uptick uh, in sadness is less sunlight, unrealistic expectations, financial pressure, amen, and excessive commercialization. The report also said that many people felt increased pressure to be perfect during the holiday season. And so on top of all of that, our guide as Christians, as we prepare for Christmas, is none other than John the Baptist. Yeah, creepy, scary John the Baptist. Uh, that if you want to get to Jesus, then you're first going to have to go through John the Baptist. In, in all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John the Baptist shows up first before Jesus. Now, if you don't know uh, John the Baptist, let me introduce you to him. Here's, uh, here's Matthew's account of John the Baptist um, from Matthew chapter 3. It says, in those days, John the Baptist appeared in the desert of Judea, announcing, change your hearts and lives. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. He was one of whom Isaiah the prophet spoke when he said, the voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts. Blech. That's bugs and wild honey. But, but people from Jerusalem throughout Judea and all around the Jordan River came to him as they confessed their sins. He baptized them in the Jordan River. Many Pharisees now and Sadducees came to be baptized by John. And he said to them, you children of snakes. Who warns you to escape the angry judgment that is coming soon? Produce fruit that shows you have changed your hearts and lives. And don't even think about saying to yourselves, Abraham is our father. I tell you that God is able to raise up Abraham's children from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and tossed into the fire. Oh, John. John, John, John. Uh, you know, John is like that relative that shows up every year at Christmas. You don't really want him there, but you have to invite him because he's family, you know. And, and you know, he's going to show up with nothing good to offer except for maybe like some dry fruitcake. Every year, John is unavoidable. I, I, think, I think a modern day version of John is, is like Cousin Eddie from uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, you know? 
He's just wading, you know, knee deep in the muddy Jordan River. He's got his camel hair robe on, a locust in his mouth, yelling out to the neighbors, sinners repent. This noxious gas of a message running out, ranting like a crazy street preacher. I mean, he, he means well, but you can only take him in small doses. But here he is. Staying the whole hap, hap, happy holiday season. Then in all four of the Gospels, John is in the same place, wearing the same clothes with the same message. Repent. Change your hearts and lives. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. Prepare the way of the Lord. But if you want to get to Jesus, you have to pass by John. Why? Why does it have to be so hard? Well, uh, John the Baptist, he's actually pretty significant because he's last in the line of prophets. The prophets are uh, the part of your Bible that's the last part of the Old Testament. So if you open up your Bible to the New Testament, you go back a few pages, you'll find uh, books written by and about prophets like the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, Hosea, Obadiah, Malachi, uh, But it's interesting that that John doesn't call himself a prophet, but he's still got the whole prophet vibe kind of going on. I mean, he's dressed like Elijah. He sounds like Isaiah, and he's standing in the water that marks the boundary between the wilderness and the promised land. I mean, this was a significant place for the prophets in the Old Testament. So John is, is like this bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's, that's important because, well, Jesus comes from this tradition. He didn't just pop out of nowhere. He's not a one-off rogue guy sitting next to an old tradition. No, John has come to tell the world that that Jesus is the branch that grows out of the stump of Jesse. That, That Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises all throughout the Old Testament. John is is God's messenger to us saying, get ready, get ready. The king is coming. The king is coming. Get ready. The king that we have been waiting for. And so, yeah, John's pretty important, but we still don't really like him. He's like Cousin Eddie. We, we, We love him. We just don't want to be around him. John, could you please go back to your van down by the river? Because, well, you have a tendency to kind of ruin the magic of Christmas with your whole talk of repentance and calling people snake children and threats of cutting us down with an axe. John, it's, it's just, it's a little bit much. I mean, I don't know all of you extremely well, but are you all really so bad that God looks at you and sees nothing more than, well, something to be cut down and thrown into fire? Does God look at you with a can of gasoline in one hand and a match in the other, ready to strike at the first sight of your sin? Now, I I know, uh, don't know exactly when I have started sinning, but I can tell you that I have been sinning at least since puberty. And I know that my sin extends at least as far back as yesterday when I gluttonously ordered 12 large pizzas. Yes, 12. 
And I know that I sinned when I cut that guy off in traffic. And even if I am everything that he swore at me at the next traffic light, and even if I do deserve to do everything that he suggested that I do to myself at the next traffic light, to say that I deserve to be cut down by God's holy hatchet and thrown into the fire, well, it sounds, it sounds a little heavy-handed, a little over the top. Does my sin really make me nothing more than a fruitless tree ready to be cut down and thrown into unquenchable fire? Is this crazy, creepy John the Baptist correct? I mean, does, does my sin so inflame God that God's ready to sweep me into a dumpster fire? Does your sin, is God really so quick to anger and abounding in steadfast wrath? So ready to lop off all the unfaithful. So John shows up with his lunchbox full of locusts with axe in hand, calling us children of snakes. Ouch, John, that hurts a little. Is that really what we are? All of us. Now, what about, what about average sinners? <laughs> What, what about what about mediocre sinners like you and me? Are, are we included in John's message too? Is, is God really ready to cut us down and throw us into the fire because we grump at our kids and we cheat on our taxes and we fall asleep watching Game of Thrones? It seems like it's, it's a little bit much just because maybe we curse a little bit too much. And it seemed like a little bit much for the religious leaders of John's day, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I mean, the average American Christian is not willing to drive through more than three traffic lights to get to church. And yet these Pharisees and Sadducees hoofed it some 20 miles through the wilderness just to meet John and to be baptized with his baptism of repentance. And so to call us, much less them, children of snakes, it seems, it seems kind of overkill. I mean, we come to church, right, around this time of year because, well, we wait. We're, we're expecting and anticipating that sweet eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus in his golden fleece diapers and a little halo over his cone-shaped head. And maybe... Maybe, maybe we also come to confess that, yeah, we, we don't pray as much as we should, or we feel bad about blocking our high school friend on Facebook. We come to confess that, yeah, we, we called in sick to work when really we weren't sick, or, or we made up some small lie about how we couldn't go out to dinner with our friends, and instead we just ordered 12 pizzas and watched Netflix. Maybe you come to confess how you secretly hit the no tip button before telling the delivery driver or the waiter, have a nice day. I mean, that, that's what we come to church for, right? For all to be calm and bright and for average forgiveness for average sins. But what does the Bible do? The Bible goes, bam, 
and it hits us over the head with its winnowing fork, yelling at us through the bullhorns, repent, you sinners, you children of snakes. And unless you start producing some righteously good fruit, God is going to cut you down and throw you into the fire. Whoa, whoa, that escalated quickly. I mean, no wonder, no wonder we anesthetize ourselves with presents and pumpkin spice latte and twinkling Christmas lights. This, this is just too much, John. And if you listen to John's brimstony bullhorn long enough, you start to think that, that your mediocre sins deserve the fullness of God's wrath. But let's be honest. Most of us are just ordinary mediocre sinners, boring even. Church would be a lot more fun if you guys sinned a little bit better, but you're not really good at it. And not, not to say that, that you've got all your stuff together and, and you're perfect, but, but I, I am just saying you're not the most impressive sinners I've ever seen. I mean, here you are in church, <laughs> In church on a Sunday morning when you could be going and painting the town red and going all Sopranos on some fools out there. By definition, you're not an impressive sinner. You're not cursing God day and night. Sure, it's true that church folks have made passive aggressive behavior a pure art form. We are great at that. But seldom do we rise to the level of children of snakes. I mean, I know you all commit a great deal of sins, but usually they're against the ones that you love most. But really? Snake children? Do we deserve that? John makes it seem like all of us are children of snakes, but really we're just kind of basic cable, modern family kinds of sinners. Yeah, sure. You hate your ex. You grumble against your pain in the rear end neighbor. But you don't, you don't hate your neighbor or hate God. You're just lazy and shallow and stingy with your love towards God and neighbor. You're just kind of careless, largely apathetic, but, but you're not worthless, burn-worthy chaff to God. That's insane. No, you just block calls from that annoying friend. You just refuse to forgive, and you don't give nearly the value of your beach house to the poor. And you're only vaguely aware of the humanitarian and refugee and racial crisis around the world. That's the kind of sinners that you are. Unimpressive. Mediocre. (laughs) Children of snakes. Don't flatter yourselves. You're not that great. But but here's, here's the point. Here's the point is that we, we don't need to exaggerate how sinful we are to try to prove how gracious God is. Seriously, don't take yourself so seriously. And that's kind of the whole point of Advent and Christmas, that, that not taking yourself so seriously is the best way to understand what sin really is. You see, sin sin isn't something that you do to offend God. Sin are not errors that 
somehow erode God's grace towards you or crimes that grieve God or, or debts that accumulate that must be reconciled before God is willing to forgive you. No, don't take yourself so seriously. Sin really is, is an issue of where your love lies, where your heart really is. To sin literally means to miss the mark. It's an old archery term. And if you were aiming for the, for the bullseye and you missed it, that means that you sinned. Now, let's be honest. You missed the target. I miss the target. And, and maybe, maybe you don't miss the target because you were trying your very hardest and you still fell short of the bullseye. Sure, sometimes. But most of the time, you miss the mark because you're not aiming for the right target. Your love is warped and your sights need to be recalibrated. What you think is love really isn't. You see, sin, sin is about where our love lies, where our love has been misguided or stingy. But sin has nothing to do with where God's love lies or God's stingy love. And so whether you're a hot mess like Saul or Samson, a traitor like Judas, or, or just, just an apathetic disciple like me, some mediocre suburbanite, God's love doesn't change because God's love doesn't change. God doesn't change. There is, there is nothing that you can do that would make God love you any less. And there's nothing that you could do that would make God love you any more. In the story, uh, the father loves the prodigal son just as much on the day he returned as when the son cursed the father and left home. God's love is not stingy. God's heart is no different. Whether you're persuaded by John the Baptist's message of repentance or not, God loves you regardless. God's love is unconditional, unchanging, unending. And so you see, when God forgives our sins, God isn't changing his mind about us. When God forgives our sins, God is changing our minds about God. Because God's mind is never anything but love because God is love with a capital L. And who the heck are you to think that you, some mediocre run-of-the-mill sinner, could change God's mind anyways? I mean, sure, you could dive into the Jordan River with John the Baptist and have a feast full of locusts, but that wouldn't change God's mind about you anyways. God loves you. God is for you. The, the question that, that John the Baptist is really trying to get us to ask is, where is our love for God? After all, that seems to be the issue with the religious leaders of his day. That's why he called them a bunch of snake children, because they gave God all the lip service. They talked the talk, but they didn't walk the walk. They, they looked, they looked like they loved God. They went to church, they dressed their best, they did all of the religious things, recited all of the right religious prayers, but they didn't do diddly squat for those who were hurting, who were oppressed, who were harmed and alone. 
And John calls us to not just repent, but to change our hearts, to change our lives, to change our minds. It's, it's not that we're a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners and God's wagging his finger at us. No, it's more that, well, we've got some stinking thinking. And so if you listen close to John's bullhorn message, you hear something interesting because even though John is the last prophet, he's, he's a different kind of prophet. You see, most of the, the prophet's message, if you went through and read the Old Testament books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all of those, if, if you read all of them, let me just summarize their message for you. Uh, their message kind of went like this. <clears throat> Stop it. Shape up. Or else. If you sin, God will punish you. But hey, if you repent, God will forgive you. That's, that's kind of all the prophets from Isaiah to Ezekiel to Joel. There's, there's just kind of this ongoing theme. But listen to what John says. John doesn't say, repent or the kingdom of heaven will come near. Like it's a threat. Shape up or else. N- nor does John use the kingdom of heaven as kind of like a reward. He, he doesn't say, repent and the kingdom of heaven will come near. And that would be more in line with like Santa Claus, Jesus, you know, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why Jesus Christ is coming to town and he's making a list and he's checking it twice, but that's not what John says either. He, he doesn't say repent and the kingdom will come near. It's not repent and get a war of reward. No, what John the Baptist has come to tell us is that we are no longer the most important variable in this equation. So don't take yourself so seriously. This is what John says. He says, repent. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. Repent. Here it comes. It, it's already on the way. It's, it's already here. This is all God's doing. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. And so get on board with it. You can choose to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, but it's, it's coming whether you are ready for it or not. And so regardless of your apathy, re- regardless of your sin, regardless of whatever, God has already decided to act. Here comes heaven. And so the best thing I can tell you to do is to repent because it's already happening, whether we're ready for it or not. So start changing your minds. Start changing your hearts. And yes, true. We do need to reorder our lives, reset our priorities and return to God. Because here comes the kingdom of heaven. And we don't want to miss it. I actually think John's message is kind of good news. I think it's especially good news for all who struggle this year. It's good news for anyone who has tried to meet these ridiculous expectations that the season and our society place on us. And well, you always fall short. I always do. Or maybe even the expectations that you hold for yourself and you fall short of. So many of us have been caught in this game of if then reward system 
And if I can just do this, then I'll get the reward. We find that just keep losing. We'll never be good enough. We'll never be kind enough. We'll never be faithful enough. We'll never be generous enough. In a world where it feels like all of the rules are rigged against us, John's message brings hope. Yeah, you children of snakes. And also, yeah, you average, mediocre sinners. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. And so whoever you are, wherever you are, it doesn't matter. Because it's not about you. It's about what is for you. And God is for you. A new day has dawned and it's a light that now shines on all people. So change your hearts, change your lives. Yeah. Because here comes the kingdom of heaven and there's nothing, nothing that you can do to stop it. So as we prepare for the kingdom of heaven that is already here, we get the opportunity to have a foretaste of that here today in our mediocre lives. God does something surprising and amazing. God shows up with the sweetness of heaven, the gift of salvation and the blessings of his grace and love. Celebrate Holy communion, which is the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. And he said that, this meal really is kind of like a foretaste of what heaven's going to be about. So we come together and sit around a table with Jesus present and we receive God's love and God's grace. And so today that's the invitation for you is that you receive God's love and God's grace. You prepare your hearts. You start changing your lives and your minds because this This is the truest thing in the world. And so, Holy God, we pray that your spirit would come and fill us up. Lord, that you would bring that peace and that hope that we so desperately long for. God, you would bring your forgiveness that you would give an abundance of grace for our sin, whether they're abundant or whether we have a hard time recalling them. God, we still need your grace. We ask that your spirit rest upon us and within us. We ask that your spirit be poured out on these gifts of bread and cup that they would be for us the body and blood of Christ so that we might be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. God, make us one with you. Make us one with each other as we come around this table and then make us one in mission and ministry to the whole world so that we might be ready and say, the King is coming. The King is coming. Pray this in Jesus name. Amen.